built to that point. He is Lord. And despite the fact that it does look a bit like we're in a post-Christian world right now, I believe there's some very exciting things going on, and I believe that, you know, God hasn't finished with us yet. So evangelism in a post-Christian world, we're going to have really three talks. Uh, one is um, ancient morality versus modern freedom. Uh, the second is authority versus internet-inspired anarchy. Uh, and the third is explaining the gospel in an age of biblical illiteracy. Now, on your seat on the way in, you'll have uh, seen this book. Uh, this is a book which um, I wrote together with my pastor, Toppy. And just for a couple of other connections in the room, a gentleman over here goes to a church uh, that meets in the same building as one of our sites at Jubilee, and he's met Toppy, so that was quite uh, nice to, to... And this gentleman here uh, is the elder of a church... Uh, elder, is that right? Yes, of the, one of the, one of the church that used to have my other grandfather, who was also um, some, somewhat of a preacher as well. So, yeah, I feel at home today. Now, you're welcome to take this copy that's on your uh, desk, on your seat, as a gift from me, uh, and I have some additional copies now normally this is £5, so we try to keep it nice and cheap. Uh, if you buy it at hopelyborn.com, you can get it for about £4. Today, <laughs> if you buy two, I'll give it to you for £5 in total, so that's £2.50 each. And if you buy five, because you really feel it's going to be of use to you in your ministry, then that'll be a tenner. How about that? That's pretty good going. That's pretty good. So anyway, that's um, our gift to you. And uh, I think really some of the material in the third talk will, will be drawing a bit from, from that book. So I should just say a little bit about uh, Toppy and myself. So Toppy is the pastor of a church called Jubilee Church in London. Uh, we're part of a group called New Frontiers, uh, who I'm sure many of you will have heard of. Um, and by God's grace, uh, we've experienced an incredible decade really of, of growth and blessings. It's interesting because our church is now about 20 years old, uh, or just turned 20 years old, uh, and the first decade was a real challenge, okay, it didn't grow very quick, it was difficult, we didn't see many people saved, but what we were seeing is some foundations being laid, and by God's grace the leadership team I first met Toppy in 1995, uh, and uh, all of our leaders now in the core team, so we have a core team of leaders, we have four elders, um, and then two of us who sort of serve alongside the elders, uh, and those six guys, we just came back from a weekend away with our wives, which was a lovely time, um, and uh, the newbie has been with us for 10 years, uh, and some of us have been together for 20 years, so we praise God for a solid team like that that he put together in that first 10 years. By the end of that first 10 years, we were about 80 people. Uh, and we felt called from God to, to move the church into a cinema. Um, and really, uh, suffice it to say that at that moment, God pressed the fast forward button. And I won't go into all the stats and everything, but it's been an incredible time of blessing. And we have seen many people saved. And that's been an exciting time for us. I would say pretty much every week now, we see souls saved. And it's a wonderful thing. And really, that's where this book came from. As I uh, explained later on, one of the things we've realized is that Many people today simply don't understand the gospel at all. They don't understand the Bible at all. Um, my wife once went to a coffee morning, and uh, at that coffee morning there was an English woman who'd lived here all her life, young lady, who was a young mum, and she had come to this coffee morning, and a woman there was presenting the gospel. And uh, when this woman got to the bit about Jesus rising from the dead, <coughs> this girl's face, her jaw dropped. She said, what? 
Do Christians believe Jesus rose again? And she had genuinely never heard that up until that point. So we live in incredible times of, of ignorance, and we found that when people responded to the gospel, the way that um, uh, Terry Berger uh, puts it, I love the way he puts it, he says people often get saved on a fragment of truth. And I think that's right. Um, and what we realised was that they then needed a little bit of help. So some of you may remember a book by Victor Jack, but it was really more of a leaflet called uh, Believe and Be Baptised. Does anyone remember that? Well, that was really part of the inspiration for this. But I think, you know, back then, you could assume a certain amount of, of understanding. So we've tried to write a book that assumes nothing uh, and can help take someone from a point where they know nothing about the gospel right going through to a point of taking their first steps of Christianity. It's not an apologetics book. There's loads of those around. Uh, so, but it is a book that takes you back to the Bible. But anyway, I, I digress. Let's crack on with really the first talk. Now, we live in a time where as a nation, it could be argued that we're losing our religion. Now, I don't know, but I suspect most of the people in the room will realise that that's not necessarily altogether a bad thing. But nonetheless... Something like the Daily Express recently, uh, the last couple of years, had this as a headline, Christianity in crisis. Britain loses faith as number of believers fall by 4 million. I think that was in a sort of 10-year period. Uh, a decade of mass immigration helped mask the scale of decline in Christian affiliation among the British-born population, while driving a dramatic increase in Islam, particularly among the young. And... The Telegraph believes that in the next decade, at some point, only a minority of people would describe themselves as Christian in this country. Now, if you look at the UK census, I'm sure these probably numbers will not be unfamiliar to some of you. In the 10 years from 2001 to 2011, we do see quite a dramatic drop. There was about 72% of people who would claim they were Christians in 2001, uh, but 59% in 2011. Uh, and notice the increase from 15% to 25% for, for no religion. And, and really the only other thing that's above sort of uh, just a few percent actually is Islam. And Islam here almost doubled in the same time. Okay, but still, despite the way that perhaps some people might think of it, 5%. You know, people sometimes I think think about Islam as though it's taking over. Um, and maybe uh, demographically that may be true in the future, but it's not quite true just yet. But really what's quite concerning is the ageing Christian population. And I think this graph expresses it quite well. So what we're seeing here is these different age groups, and it's a bit odd because some of them are, one of them's just 15 on its own. But nonetheless, what you see here is that if you look at the people who are over 85, like my grandfather, who, who Roger used to pass, who's still alive, who just had his 93rd birthday, actually if you make it that long, um, you're... Over 80% of these people will say that they're Christians. Okay? Obviously, they've probably said that they were Christians all their lives. Now, that then goes down until really by the time you'll get to sort of your early 20s, uh, that it's now well under 50% who will say that. Interestingly, the kids are higher, but then I guess that's because of the, the older parents. This is not true for, for no religion. In fact, the opposite is true. So, there are many, many more people who will say they've got no religion who are younger. No great surprise there, and hardly anyone who's older will say that. Uh, and Islam, as you, as you can see, it's mostly young, which is why, you know, the demographics would say uh, that, that they are on the rise. But of course, if it really was the case that 59% of the British population were Christian, 
arguably we could all go home. <laughs> um, but actually, it's not true. So if you, this was another survey that was done. It wasn't the, the exact same thing as the census survey, but what they did was they asked people the same census survey question. You know, what would you call your religion? And they'd say, I'm Christian. So okay, so do you believe that Jesus Christ was a real person who died and came back to life and who was the Son of God? And I think most people in the room, most Christians, actually of any denomination, uh, probably even the Catholics, certainly Pentecostals, everyone would agree that, as a minimum, really, that you've got to believe that to be a Christian. And what's fascinating is that actually less than half of people who said that they're Christians did say that. But there's two ways of looking at this, because what we're really saying is that still today, something around about 25 to 30 percent of the population out there believe that Jesus was the real person who died and came back to life and was the Son of God. Now, that is perhaps surprising. I think it's very easy when you look at these statistics to get really depressed. But I would argue that actually what that says to us is that there's a whole group of people out there who do believe, but they're very disillusioned in general with the church. And maybe they're not real Christians, maybe they sort of are on the brink of believing, but these are the people who are going to respond well to, for example, a book like this. One of the things that we found interesting, actually, so far with the book, um, and it has only just come out, just personally, just anecdotally from my own experience, um, two friends of my children, who are both in their teens, who both are from a Catholic background, and who were both beginning to explore sort of evangelical, said that when they read this book, it really helped answer all of their questions. You know, Because if you come to a belief that maybe the Bible's got something to say, Maybe God, Jesus is real, but you've got a whole bunch of questions, you've got a whole bunch of things you don't understand. Really, this, is, this, this should be our prime territory, if you like. Uh, it's very difficult, I think, to persuade an atheist to become a Christian in five minutes. These guys, if you hit them at the right moment and discuss them, with them in the right way, they could become a Christian in ten minutes, because arguably they're, they're either already there or they're certainly pretty close. So it's an interesting point. Church attendance... Similarly, it has been declining. So in 1980, they reckon about 5 million, or about 11% of the population, uh, were in church on any given Sunday. Uh, and that has gone down quite dramatically in, in, into 2005. But of course, it's very difficult, and the measurement's not always very clear. So this was a survey. Uh, and I suspect here that people are kind of over um, making themselves look better, you know? Uh, because actually, if you think about it here, what we were saying here is that 9% of these people were saying they'd been in church within the last week. Well, if that really was true, then this, this number here would obviously be a lot higher, but there we go. Um, but what's interesting about this as well is you can see this two ways. You can go, oh, this is really discouraging. Look, you know, 20% uh, has never been to church, 43% you know, more than a year ago. But there's a big chunk of people were dipping in and out of church. Obviously. Now, obviously, that's probably too big because I think people, you know, said they went to church when they didn't, perhaps. But nonetheless, there are a bunch of people out there who are very willing and very ready to be invited to church. And I think this is something that we can, we can lose sight of, you know, when we're focused on how difficult it is and how things are going, you know, not our way, if you like, how numbers are going down. But the, here's the reality, if a friend invites you to church, particularly perhaps at Christmas or at Easter, it's, it's relatively easy for many people to come. 
Uh, but here's the challenge. Many of us don't invite our friends. Because the confidence problem again, and it's the confidence problem sometimes in the ministers and the evangelists, let alone in the ordinary members of the congregation. And I think our challenge is first of all to be confident ourselves, and second of all to pass on that confidence to others. But I think the other part, point here is that what we're really seeing in the UK, I believe, is a collapse in nominal Christianity. Um, and so the liberal churches are declining faster. Here's the thing. Liberal churches never make converts. <laughs> Nobody gets saved in a liberal church. Nobody. They prey on people who made some kind of commitment at some other point and who are now struggling with how does my faith fit with society? How does it fit with the changes in society? And so a liberal church grows by transfer growth from other evangelical churches. And I think that's become more and more and more clear. And it's a funny thing because one of the great tragedies of the church is that time after time people don't learn the, the lessons of history. And so you find somebody, and uh, I'm not going to mention any names at this point, but you'll probably recognise this kind of story. Somebody who is someone who's desperately trying to serve God, doing all kinds of stuff, but wants desperately for the church to grow. And, and they think, well, the problem is the church is so out of step with society, what we need to do is change the message slightly and make it more amenable to society. And for a little while that looks like it's going to work, but... History is littered with the wrecks of liberal movements that have since died away. I remember when I was a kid growing up, you know, the, the evangelical were almost seen as a sort of nutty fringe of Christianity. Now we basically are Christianity in this country. And, and the reality is we've got so used to sort of fighting other Christians that we need to stop that, actually. Because these days, basically, it's evangelical churches that are growing, by and large. Now, sometimes they may disagree on certain things, and I'm not saying we, we can't have different opinions, but what I am saying is that now to live as a Christian is a costly decision rather than a social asset. And I think that's an important change that's happened in my lifetime, really. Uh, and it's one that we neglect at our peril. Because what it means is that, that actually we've got a lot more in common with evangelicals who may disagree with us on things like mode of baptism, things like, you know, the, the role of the Holy Spirit, things like um, precise models of church government. Uh, and we, we're fools if we think we can you know, afford to fight with those people and demonize those people now. Uh, because actually, if you believe the core gospel, if you can pick up this book and go, I agree. You know, more importantly, if you can pick up the Bible and say, I agree with that Bible, I'm not going to try and take bits out of it. I'm not going to try and, and, and erase it. You know, one of the things I've found sometimes in the debates I've done you know, I can sit and debate someone who disagrees with me on all kinds of things, but they tremble at the word of God. Where it becomes very difficult is to debate with someone who says they're Christian, but actually they want to take a pair of scissors to the word of God. Because how do you debate with such a person? And they'll say something like this, well, I think God is a God of love. And so surely he couldn't want to send people to hell, for example. How could a God of love want to do that? And it's like trying to debate Jello because you know if you then start saying, well, what about the verses that Jesus said? It's like, oh, well, you don't understand properly. And it's 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 very difficult. 
But actually, it's a big opportunity for us because increasingly, I think, and it will happen ongoingly, people who, who say they're Christians actually are going to be Christians. That's, that's a nice thing in many ways. It's like a pruning time. The nation, though, has moved on from Judeo-Christian values. Uh, and I think it's imperative on us to recognise this and not try and pretend otherwise. You know, we are all missionaries in an anti-Christian environment now. And I think it's important to get that into our heads. Uh, and, and, and sometimes Christians get themselves into a, net, a, a real mess by trying to treat the world as though it's still Christian. This nation is still a Christian nation. We might as well just accept it's not a Christian nation. And once you've accepted that, it changes your perspective quite radically. And it's worse than that. The society now really sees Christianity as ancient and as irrelevant. So just as a couple of examples, euthanasia. A doctor should be allowed to end the life of a patient with an incurable disease. Recent survey, 71% of people who said they were religious were in favour of that statement. 92% of those who are non-religious were in favour. I, I hope there's nobody in this room that would agree with that, by the way. Talk to me afterwards. <laughs> I'll show you a couple of Bible verses like this one. Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> but it's so radical and so diametrically opposed to what society is now starting to say. Now at the moment, euthanasia is still illegal. But for how much longer? <laughs> Abortion. Abortion should be allowed in cases where the parents do not wish have a child, which is technically still illegal by the way. People forget this. We, uh, in theory, do not have abortion on demand in this country, not according to what the law says, uh, but 76% of people think that this is fine. And actually, I was so shocked to read, uh, about a year or so ago now, I think it was, an article published in a mainstream medical journal by a medical ethicist who argued that since everyone knows abortion is correct, and since there's no real difference between a baby in a mother's womb and a baby just born, that we should be allowing infanticide in every case that we allow abortion. Every case that we allow abortion, that infanticide should be allowed. Where have we got to? Now, of course, in a sense, her argument backshoots on itself, doesn't it? Because most people, I think, would still agree that to smother a newborn baby is wrong, even out there in the world. But if that's wrong, I wonder afresh how passionately we still feel about this issue. It's very easy to become jaded about it, but we are living in an age of holocaust, actually. A holocaust that is greater in number than anything the Germans did in the war. And this is what God says about it, for you formed my inmost parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. We live in a world that has rejected this. Sexuality is probably the next biggest challenge for the church. 
I'm not going to spend too long on this, but traditional Christian values are now seen as incredibly repressive. Anything less than so-called freedom, whatever that means, is believed to be restrictive. And celibacy, which was once celebrated, is seen as limiting the expression of one's core identity. How, how do Christians respond to social change of any type? And the answer is there are several different responses. I think the first one is, you know, when Christians have seen that a particular social change is very much in line with the Bible, what's happened? We've been at the forefront of that sort of social change. We've championed it. We've promoted it. We've been part of progress. We've been seen as progressive. And perhaps the best example of that would be slavery abolition. Uh, but actually, there is still slavery in the world today. Uh, and, and I think it would be great if Christians were still known for being anti-slavery in the way that they were in the past. And yet, we don't hear much about that today. I think that there's also another approach, which is uh, resist, but then accept. Uh, not necessarily changing our perspectives, but in terms of society, recognising that society cannot be expected to follow the Bible's laws, if you like. And I think divorce is the best example of this. Many of us uh, in the room would be old enough to remember, you know, opposition from the church towards divorce, even in society. You know, that surely divorce laws should not be allowed to be liberalised. And yet I don't think you'd find hardly any Christians today that would argue that the divorce laws in society out there anyway should be made tighter. Now we may have a different perspective about divorce in the church, although even that has changed in many churches, but we may have a different perspective to society on divorce, but we're quite clear that our perspective is one thing, society's is another. And so that's one way that, that Christians approach some of these social change issues. We, we reject, we, we, we try and resist, but when it becomes inevitable, we kind of go along with it, whilst holding on, hopefully, to our own values. And then the third way is continual resistance. Uh, and I really hope that there'll never come a point when the majority of evangelicals go, oh, well, abortion's fine, no problem. But even there, it's interesting, I think younger evangelicals have almost given up hope about ever changing the law on this matter. <coughs> but, you know, we have pregnancy crisis services where we try and, with love and grace, reach out to people. You know, we try and teach a different view of life. We try and respect life in, in our society and, in, in, you know, in our churches. And there are incredibly complex questions when we realise that we're in this kind of environment where the world has moved on from our values. Uh, and I think we do well to recognise the complexity of these questions and to respect that different Christians may come to slightly different opinions on some of these questions, because it's not just one question. You know, there's, there's one question, what laws should we expect society to enact? What laws should we be campaigning for? What should the church be teaching? And those first two things might be completely different, actually. You know, we might want a society that, that has true freedom of religion, if you like, and that respects the freedom of, let's say, Muslims to worship, uh, and actually they are experiencing quite a lot of oppression as well, uh, and we might do well to, to campaign for their freedom, because in campaigning for their freedom, we're also campaigning for ours. But of course, we're not going to teach Islam in our churches. Yeah? Well, 
<coughs> I don't think you'd be in this room if you were. <laughs> so what laws we expect society enact might be very different from what we expect to be preached from our pulpit. But then there's another question, which is how much disagreement are you going to allow within a local church? Within a church membership? You know, how far off the party line, if you like, does someone have to stray before we say, sorry, no, 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 no. And then, how should we discuss some of these issues with unbelievers? And I think this is critical, because unfortunately, we live in a world where increasingly evangelicals are seen as hostile, as negative, as hateful. And Jesus was none of those things. So we have to think about how we're going to engage with people out there in the world who think differently from us on all of these issues. And I suspect that there's a recalibration that needs to happen, unfortunately, in many churches. I humbly put that to you. John Humphreys did a poll in 2007. 42% of the participants believed that religion had a harmful effect. And before you say, oh yes, I agree, we're not religious. I think you know that the people who answered this question were talking about all people of faith. So we do have an image problem. And I think it's incumbent on those of us who say that we love the doctrines of grace to make sure that we demonstrate grace towards others, not condemnation and angry rejection. You know, we think of the story in John when a woman caught in adultery was thrown at Jesus' feet. And uh, they wanted to stone her. I wonder whether some evangelicals today would have been in the crowd wanting to stone her. But Jesus wasn't. He said, let him who has no sin cast the first stone, and they all melted away. And then he looked at her and he said, go and sin no more. He didn't reject her, but he also didn't accept her lifestyle. It's interesting. But he demonstrated love. Unfortunately, I think there's still a little bit too much Pharisaism involved in some evangelical churches. Uh, and I would argue that Pharisaism is hating sin and the sinner. You know, and it can be like that. We can, we can react negatively to people that we disagree with. And I, I hope nobody in the, this room is like that. But I'm afraid that there are evangelicals that are like this. But then there are others who swing the other way. And licentiousness is loving the sinner, yes, but it's loving their sin as well. And it may sound twee and it may sound, you know, oversaid, but I think it's true. Jesus does call us to hate sin, but to love the sinner. Uh, and how we do that in a modern world, I haven't got all the answers for that. But I think the, to us the question is very important. How do we position ourselves, if you like, as Christians today? Some, unfortunately, position themselves as superior know-it-alls who reject those who are different from us. And even if it's not what we're deliberately doing, that's the perception. Uh, and one of the things that I think we have to understand is that perception is reality, at least in that person's mind. It may not be reality, but it is in that person's mind. And so that's a challenge that we're having to address sometimes when we're meeting people. That we're not, they're not expecting us to respond to them with love, uh, even if we might disagree with them. They're expecting us to reject them. And I think there's, there's another way of approaching, which is more that we accept that we are, as someone's already said this morning, we are learners. And we are ourselves broken. 
but we're on a journey. We're on a journey of discovery, a journey of understanding, a journey of not having all the answers. I think that's really critical. Sometimes, I think as Christians, we, we're so desperate to show that we have all the answers. Whereas actually, people are looking for deeper answers. And sometimes, the best thing you can say to someone is, I don't have an answer for that. Someone asked me recently for a new book that was coming out, an e-book, um, to, in 300 words, answer why, when there is so much evil in the world, God doesn't answer everyone's prayers. In 300 words. It's like, well, you can't, can you? Uh, but what I did find myself saying in there was that I, I talked about the story of Job, and I said, look, uh, you know, what, what we learned in Job was a few things that were not true, that firstly, just because you're suffering and God isn't answering prayers, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a worse sinner than anyone else, you know? And it certainly doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that God's against you, you know? Uh, and then at the end of the day, actually, Job was allowed to ask God his questions. And so it's obviously okay to ask God questions, but, but actually, God didn't answer Job. And basically, what God effectively said was, look, I am God, and you are not. So trust me. <coughs> And I think that there's a key there in, in this, that we don't have all the answers. And, and sometimes in the past, I think evangelicals have been guilty of trying to have all the answers. You know, and, and, it, and it's a little twee. You know what I mean? It's a little bit, how are you doing? I'm trusting Jesus. Yes, I know. You know, my husband's got cancer. But I'm trusting Jesus. Praise the Lord. And it's good to praise the Lord, and it's good to trust Jesus, but it's also okay to grieve. This isn't in my script, but it's one of my passions. I have a whole article that I wrote, actually, I think it was the day after my father-in-law passed on. Uh, and in it, I took apart that verse. There's a verse that where Paul says um, that we should not grieve as those who have no hope. And unfortunately, people misinterpret that verse, because if you read it carelessly, it sounds like we should not grieve. You know, seeing what it says. You should not grieve. But people miss it. What it's actually saying is this. We should not grieve in the same way as those who have no hope. So it's okay to grieve. It's okay to have unanswered questions. It's okay to have pain. And the truth is this. Most evangelists have those too. But they spend all their lives trying to hide them. Because they're afraid it will put people off. If the people you're talking to think you're phony, especially in today's age, they won't want to know. They won't. Much better to say, yeah, you know, there are difficult questions that I don't have the answers for. Yeah, I do struggle. But you know what? You just said to me that you think that we all came about purely by chance, that we're all just the product of, of abortion, of evolution rather. So tell me this. How do you explain why it hurts so much? Why should it bother us that people are dying if we're just, you know, apes that are a bit smarter than other apes. Why does it feel so wrong? Christianity, yes, we have the problem of suffering, but it's a problem that mankind shares. It's not a problem that, that's unique to us. And the difference is we believe we've got an answer to it. We believe we've got hope. Yeah. And that's why, you know, we, we went for the title Hope Reborn because I think hope is something that people are looking for today. We've kind of, as a nation, managed to con ourselves that we're not guilty anymore. Now, we are. 
And the book does talk about that. But you can't assume anymore that people are full of guilt. They're not. But everyone, as the Bible says, who's out there without God is also without hope. You know, without hope and without God in this world. And so we have to, you know, we, we meet people where they're at, but we build them to where, where we want them to be. And we say, well, the reason you're struggling with hopelessness is because, and we have to explain that. But we can't assume that they get that. Because actually, if you say to somebody, but you're a sinner. These days, you know what they think you're saying? They think you're saying, well, you're a paedophile. Imagine that evangelistic conversation. Jonathan, I just want to tell you that I think you're a paedophile, but don't worry, Jesus can save you. You know, you're not going to want to listen to the rest of the conversation, are you? You're going to be indignant. And unfortunately, that's the way people see the word sin today. They, they only think of sin in those horrendous examples, maybe murder, you know, what Adolf Hitler did. You know, they think of themselves as basically good, uh, at least on the surface. You know, we've, we've suppressed this notion of sin away, and we've got rid of it. So, so if you just go straight in there with sin, it ain't going to work. I'm not saying don't get to sin, because of course sin is the core of the gospel, and, and Jesus' response to that. But we have to start with showing them that, that, that God is for them, and that God loves them. And that we, too, are on that same journey with them. We're not better than them. We're not saying that we're holier than now. And just as Jesus was described as a friend of sinners. You know, so, so often Christians have focused on, you know, come out from among them and be separate. Actually, that's, that's not what God calls us to in this world. He says, I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. Unfortunately, too many Christians are of the world. Jesus hasn't really changed them on the inside yet but they're not in it. And so they keep themselves distant from the world and think that they're okay, whereas actually on the inside they're full of hate, they're full of anger, they're full of bitterness, they're full of unforgiveness. Uh, and, 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 and Jesus' work hasn't had its real effect in, in their hearts. Uh, and the isolation isn't so much for holiness as for superiority and to be basically like the Pharisees. Pharisaism is not going to work in this society. I don't think it ever did, really. But how does Jesus see the UK? He says this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not, will not prevail against it. Amen? Amen. Let's just say this together. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. We have to seize hold of these promises and apply them to the UK. It says this. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And as evangelists and as evangelicals and as pastors, just as ordinary Christians, we must believe that this is true. That the fields are ripe for harvest. That out there are millions of people, some of whom even believe in God. Some of whom even believe that Jesus was the Son of God in some way. And they sort of believe he rose again even. But they're not truly saved. And they're ripe for the picking. It can feel hard to believe this when you've knocked on a hundred doors and they've all slammed in your face. Yeah? But it's true. 
It really is true. It's not wishful thinking, it's true. The fields are ripe for harvest. And there are churches in the UK today that are growing and growing rapidly in some parts, especially in parts of London and other places, and people who are getting saved. So we must not allow ourselves to become disillusioned. How does Jesus see the UK? The harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. The labourers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. And I'm going to just challenge us, you know, how, how much do we pray for the Lord to send out workers into the harvest? How much do we pray blessing on other Christians rather than feel jealous of them? Sometimes we look down the road. A friend of mine, actually, lovely guy, tells a story. He was a pastor. He started a church in Texas and it grew to about a thousand, you know? And if you were anywhere else in the world, you'd be really thrilled. In Texas, that's a small group. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so he got a bit discouraged, actually. I may find it hard to believe some of you, but he did. Uh, and one time he was standing up at the top of a hill praying uh, for, for his city. But it wasn't really praying, it was more complaining at God. And he looked across the city and he could see uh, in the distance one of the churches in town. And he said, over there is a church where the minister stole money from the congregation. And it's growing. How come, God? And over there, there's a church where the minister had an affair with someone in the congregation. And it's growing. How come? He says, God, he says, I kept my hand out of the collection and I've kept my trousers zipped up. Why aren't you blessing me? Not the kind of praise you'd really pray to the Lord. <laughs> but I guess it's better to be honest with him if that's how you feel than to keep it bottled up. Anyway, it was interesting because immediately this thought came into his mind and he says, when will Jesus be enough for you? When will Jesus be enough for you? And he says, that phrase undid him took away from him the anxiety of performance, you know, and, and, and brought him back to his relationship with Jesus and said, no, actually, I want to be faithful, I want to love you, I want to serve you, I want to leave the results to you. And you know what happened, ironically? His church started to grow. Now that he wasn't idolising that church growth. It's interesting, we can idolise success. It's Jesus' harvest, not yours, and not mine. But he does call us and send us out into the harvest. And of course, the very next verse, as you know, was him sending his own disciples out in response to their prayers. And Matthew 28. These are all verses that are familiar, I know, but I just want us to be reminded of them and to be inspired afresh by them. All authority, said Jesus, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations except the UK. Is that what it says? No. It doesn't. It says of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus is with us and he's sending us and we're on a mission from God. And he will equip us and give us everything we need to accomplish this mission. But we shouldn't be surprised when we get opposition. 
Some of us are surprised, but Jesus said, look, I'm sending you a sheep in the midst of wolves. I mean, know that a sheep doesn't stand much chance in the midst of wolves. So be wise. And I think this is critical. In this day and age, we must, must learn to be wise in our communication. Wise in our thought about how we're going to address society. They must be wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. I mean, it's easy sometimes to be so cunning and twist the word. But actually, God isn't calling us to do that. But he is calling us to be wise. He says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they'll flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about what you should say or how to speak. He says, because I'll give it to you in that hour. But listen, the men there, it says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Yes, we'll be hated, and Christians are hated. Well, we must make sure we're hated for his name's sake and not for something we've done. Which is, of course, what Peter says, really, as well. He says, look, if you're going to suffer, suffer for righteousness' sake. Don't suffer for being an idiot. You know, don't suffer for, for being a fool, for doing something silly, which is, is, you know, God never called you to. You know, and sometimes, to be honest, maybe it's just me, but, you know, sometimes I read some of the stories of Christians who've been persecuted in the UK, and sometimes I feel very sorry for the Christian, I, I, will, I do, but other times I read what's being said and I, I just think to myself, well, if that's really what happened, and of course it may not be, in some cases the media twists it, but, you know, at least some of the time, I do think that people are a bit foolish in the way in which they go about this, you know? I mean, you know, you can disagree with me about that afterwards, and I'm not going to get into arguing about individual cases, but you get my point. There's, a, there's, a, there's an inevitability about persecution, but we don't go looking for it. We don't go seeking it out, we don't be unwise, and we don't be horrible. But we mustn't be afraid either, and we must honour Jesus as, as our Lord in our hearts, and we must be prepared to make a defence. And I wonder, you know, how much of your role do you see as helping others be ready to make this defence? Or, or how much have you allowed the churches that you're associated with uh, to, to fall into this trap of saying, oh, well, he's the evangelist, or he's the pastor, or, or he's one of, even just, he's one of the kind of keen Christians, you know, we can get into that. And yet, you know, as I was just, just talking before the session, I, I really passionately believe, actually, in uh, what I call the sort of uh, restoration view of church history, if you like. And I, I look at church history, uh, and I go back to the Reformation, and even to a certain degree beyond that, and I say, what I see is, is God raising up groups of people to restore certain truths to the church. And very often, actually, when they, when they get it, first of all, they're opposed by everybody. Um, and then after a while, many people come to accept it. And we see that, of course, with the Reformation, with you know, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. We see that with the Anabaptists, who were reviled actually by many of the, people, the early reformers. And yet, today, I, I suspect most people in this room, if not all of us, would be you know, um, adult Baptists, we might not call ourselves Baptists, we might call ourselves all other names, but if you're basically in the UK, or if you're not in the Church of England, you tend to not be a pedo-Baptist, and so that, you know, those of us who are on that side of that, I would say, well, that was reclaimed for us by this group, you know, um, and, you know, let's not forget that, uh, that you know, the, the counties, uh, the, the link to the Brethren movement, the Brethren movement brought, really, to us, as churches, this notion of the priesthood of all believers. Um, and it's funny because I think most people would agree with that now. Now we can 
and we were discussing this, that not all churches completely follow it, and it's not always uh, easy to follow. But, you know, the verse we heard this morning it, from Ephesians, elsewhere in Ephesians, it tells us that we are to be equipped, that God calls people to be certain ministers, if you like. Yes, he does. You know, he gives people roles, he gives people certain gifts. But he does it not in order that they could be, you know, the solution, but in order that they could equip God's people for the works of ministry. So, you know, we must encourage people in our churches, everyone in our churches, to be prepared. And that is one of the things that, the secrets behind this book, although it says on there, how to become a Christian and live for Jesus, actually, we found one of the main groups of people that benefit from reading this are people who are already Christians. But they wouldn't know how to answer this question. How then do I become a Christian? You know, their friend, they've been talking to, says, well, I want to become a Christian. And they're like, um, well, I guess you should sort of come to church. Like, oh, and maybe get baptised. And you think, yeah, come on. What is a Christian then? You know, and actually it can be quite worrying, because one of the concerns I have is that people in our congregation sometimes may not understand the Gospel. You know, maybe they're not reading the Bible very much. Maybe they're not really grasping it. And maybe the preaching assumes the gospel rather than explains it. You know, and uh, I think one of the things that drove us writing this book was the, the fearful thought that we might get to heaven. And God would say, well, see all those people that used to come on Sunday morning? You, you liked the fact that the numbers were big, didn't you? Half of them not coming in because they were never saved and I remember having this conversation with Toppy I said I, I, I can't think of anything worse than that and Toppy said immediately I can and that's getting there and discovering we weren't saved either <laughs> <laughs> seriously the scripture tells us we should examine ourselves to be sure that we're in the faith and as part of that process of examining ourselves of making sure that we've got the foundations right we don't just assume that, oh well and just, of course I know the gospel. I'm a pastor. You know, I studied it for three years at university. Do you? Really? Has it gone from here to here? Is it thrilling you still? Or is it old hat to you?